Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. Well, today we are, uh, of course, slowly finishing a summer series, and uh, I did want to let, uh, especially our little kids, uh, fourth and under, fourth grade and under, uh, go on to class, and so we waited till school got started before we handled some of these. But I will say this, I'll start out by saying we have come a long way since cremation. Uh, this is not a cremation message. We're not talking about dinosaurs and aliens today, um, but uh, we are going to be talking about some very sensitive things that demand an answer, and I believe demand an answer from the pulpit, uh, and so we're going to spend, uh, we're going to spend a little time this week, especially on a very, a very uh, polarizing issue, uh, polarizing especially in our culture and in our day. Uh, and so uh, I'm going to be all over the place, and so I'm not going to give you a specific passage of Scripture, but I want to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. And I've done this often in regard to Genesis 1 and 2 and, 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 and 3 as well, because we find some very foundational things about about our, our faith and even about our own culture there because we find more about human, human nature. But in Genesis chapter 1, when God is creating, Adam especially, creating man, and, and he sees very quickly, of course God already knew it because before the foundation of the world was laid, he knew that he was sending his son. And so we, he already knows in his foreknowledge what's going to happen. While he can know it's going to happen, he doesn't cause it to happen. That's God's sovereignty. Uh, but... Uh, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we find two tellings, but they're of the same story. It's more detailed in the second. But God looks at Adam and he sees that uh, for Adam, it is not good for man to be alone. And so he made a helper for him. But before that, it is very clear that what God told Adam before there was even Eve, that he should multiply and fill the earth. Uh, that there was going to be a replication of Adam uh, in, in the earth that was... The primary thing, and in order to accomplish that procreation, replication method, God gave, gives man a woman as a helper, as a companion. And so, be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth. Now, that word replenish, if we're not careful, we will think this isn't God's only creation. But it truly is in Hebrew, that word just simply means to feel the earth, not to feel the earth again, all right? So uh, we want to be diligent Bible scholars in that and make sure that we're consistent with last week. Uh, replenish does not mean that the earth was once filled and Adam was filling it again. So it's not good for man to be alone. And so God, while he created and organized and even in his forethought planned out what sex was going to look like, it is God's idea. And think about this. We know that honoring mother and father, there's only one way that you're a mother and father, but honoring mother and father is the first commandment, what? With a promise. But it's not the first commandment. The first commandment is sexual relationships. Be fruitful. That's the first thing He commanded Adam to do, to be fruitful, right? And so then He gave him the mechanism with which to be fruitful, and that's marriage. Now, while Genesis chapter 1 and 2 doesn't call it marriage, Jesus does in the book of Matthew, where he talks about divorce, going all the way back to, in the beginning it was not so, and there he talks about marriage. Now, in marriage, it is the one unique relationship. where So, so God says, let us make man in our image. So 
So wait a minute. Us, yes, God in Hebrew is Elohim. I am in Hebrew is plural. This does not mean that we believe in multiple gods. It means that we believe in one God in three persons of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit and their perfect union with one another. Their oneness, one God, and how they work within that unity. When God said, let us make man in our image, I believe that God creates man in that unity. We are born flesh, body, that's represented in the, in the uh, uniqueness of the Son who became flesh and dwelt among us where we relate with Him physically. The Spirit where we relate emotionally. God made us emotional beings. And spiritually where we relate to the unconditional love and relationship to the Father. And so even in creation, the Son, the Spirit, and the Father in perfect union... We are made in perfect union, but that union is destroyed and marred by the fall, by corrupt nature. In other words, because of the fall, my flesh is corrupted. My emotions are corrupted, and spiritually I am dead. But by coming to life in the Spirit, I am healed, I am renewed, and I am transformed. By the power of the Trinity working within me. Christ's life, the Spirit's life, and the Father's life. There is no possible illustration that more clearly demonstrates that to culture than marriage. So we find in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says, Behold, I show you a mystery. And he begins to explain to us marriage. That The husband should love his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So in a marriage relationship, the husband represents Christ. In the marriage relationship, and the wife should respect her husband. And we find that the wife represents the church. In this union together, we become, we as as individuals with Christ, as the church with Christ, we become one flesh in marriage We become physically, emotionally, and spiritually one with our spouse. And that clearly, in that unconditional reserve, we're able to experience both the pleasure and also to be able to give that pleasure and glory back to the Father in the oneness of marriage. That's the beauty of Him saying, and the two shall become one flesh. They should leave and cleave to one another. It is very clear, sex was God's idea, and it can only bring Him glory and honor and be any kind of redemption because of the fall of man where it's marred. It can only be redeemed by a right relationship with Him. And He gives us the user manual. He created it, He gave it to us, and then He said, here's how it's to be used. Now, just like everything that God spoke or created. So you remember back again, let's go back to Genesis chapter 3. And you remember, I don't know if it's the first time, but it's the first time we know about it. When the serpent comes to Eve, and the first temptation that we're aware of, the serpent whispers to Eve and says what? Does anybody remember? Did the Lord really say? Did He really say? There is an attack on the Word of God, a rewriting of the Word of God, a reworking for conveniences. 
And that is a very, very ancient trick that is still working today among those who know better. In our, in our, we, you can go back and look at history books. I'm not going to go through every culture. It, it would take us way too long, although we could do it. You can go back and look at the founding, and you can go 150 years or so in where there is this basis of truth and this settling of truth and where that truth begins to get dismantled. And, you know, we, we know that there's never really been ever a culture that has lasted in any form as an empire for more than 400 years. And it's because the framework by which it was started begins to crumble and fall apart. And I'm not a prophet. In fact, for those of you who hadn't heard this sad, terrible joke, I actually work for a nonprofit organization. I'm not a prophet. But I will say that when the word in our country, and while there have always been unbelievers, there have only always been antichrists, even in our founding the word began to be attacked even in the churches in the end of about the 1800s. That's pretty easily documented, and I don't have time to give a history story, but you can go back and study that. I also want to look at psychology for just a few moments because I think it's important for us to know how did we get here. If you're not careful, you will see here in this isolated bubble and think this happened all at once. It didn't happen all at once where we got here. I'm talking about in our sexual revolution today and all of the confusion that seems to be coming with it. We didn't just wake up here and uh, it's just not now getting bad. In the end of the 1800s, psychology journals and even in dictionaries, you will find that the definition for normal sex is a sexual relationship between a husband and a wife for the purpose of childbearing. And that normal sex or sexual relationship that for the purpose of childbearing is also, God gives it not only this mundane task of turning out kids, there's also pleasure and intimacy and a spiritual connection and a bonding that takes place in that relationship. It is much more than just animalistic propagating of children. But it is to be found within marriage. Now, interestingly enough, there was already the term heterosexual sexual relationships. That was any form of sexual relationship between a man and a woman that did not belong in marriage, that, he, that, he, that, uh, that was expressed outside of a marital relationship. So heterosexual was any sort of sexual deviation away from marriage. Of course, homosexual relationship was any form of heterosexual sexual relationship that was with members of the same sex, obviously. So you had three terms. You had normal sex. You had abnormal sex. Within the, re the, the realms of abnormal sex, you had heterosexual and homosexual. And this was Satan's way of saying, has God really said? Now, other than, uh, even then, back, back in those olden days, the old-fashioned days, those obedient Christians who sought to honor God's Word, we already know that from the very beginning, there have always been people who did not do right. 
people who stepped outside of God's boundaries, people who did things that did not bring glory and honor to God, and they used sex as a form of pleasure, even if it was mutual pleasure, and used it for selfishness. How do I feel? How do I think? Gratification, sexual gratification, all those sorts of things. Now, back in those days, and for, de- for decades, there was uh, the primary resistance or reason for not engaging in heterosexual relationships was having children out of wedlock. Did you know that really effective contraception hasn't really existed for very long? And I won't go into the details, and don't research it, I won't go into the details of the crude, weird ways that we thought that men and women conceived children and ways that it was trying to be uh, prevented. But that was the number one reason. We had better be careful. We'd better make sure. So the reason that we would not engage heterosexually was because we didn't want these unwanted pregnancies, these unwanted children. And when someone did have an unwanted pregnancy, we would pack up that little girl's bags and send her off to an aunt or to a boarding school somewhere so that it would be out of sight, out of mind, because it's an embarrassment. Because normal people, normal families don't do that. It wasn't that long ago. Something happened in the mid-1900s, and it really changed everything. Uh, And it's still changing everything. And it's the pill. Uh, The pill was not actually uh, even manufactured until 1960. And it spread like wildfire, like you could imagine. And what it did is it turned normal sex into something that was boring and mundane. And it, it moved heterosexual relationships into normal because now, if she's on the pill, we don't have to worry about unwanted pregnancies. Now, we can enjoy the privacy of our own relationship and nobody, there's no consequences except the God complex. And we're not too worried about that. We've moved way beyond that, surely. And so we're changing the way people viewed relationships and we're changing the way people view sex. So where birth control was practiced within marriage to have sex with whomever, and now we have sex with whomever without the goal of childbearing and primarily for mutual pleasure only. And then it moved into consensual sex, where we are, the goal was to please each other. So we moved from sex with purpose and capable of pleasing God to sex for mutual pleasure outside of God's design, And 50 years ago, we began seeing sexual encounters as purely pleasure and purely selfish to where we are today, where we don't even need a partner. It's in front of us all the time, and it's only for me, and it's secret, and it's private, and it's none of your business. But it doesn't mean that God changed His mind on the manual. Then it became about feelings, and I feel, and I feel, and I want, and I need, and expressions. And then, it wasn't about feelings, and longings, and expressions. It became about rights. Now listen, make no mistake. If we're going to call it marriage, marriage belongs to God. Period. So we go from, well, we don't really want to be 
we don't really want to be married, recognized as married. We just want to be recognized. So they're recognized. And then it went from don't want to be just recognized. We need civil rights, civil unions. And so there were many in this movement. And I, I could get very, we won't get into all of it, but uh, especially the revolts of the 60s and the 70s and the liberation and the, all of the, the things that went on during those, those decades moved from civil unions, being recognized as civil unions, and now no civil unions, we want marriage. And today, we don't just want marriage, we want to be a family. And if we can't be a family... Now we're starting to deal with, well, not just now, but starting to deal with gender identities and how do you identify. And if you identify with something, you actually can become something other than you were created to be. Well, listen, this isn't new. This has been taking place for thousands of years. Only in our country has it started creeping up in the last 60 years. We have moved from marriage or relationship or sex within marriage to being something that is very, very special. And we've trivialized it to the point that now not only is it trivialized, it is so abused everywhere you look. It has been heightened to this glorified place. And it has become to identify most people's, their identity is wrapped up in, not I identify as this or identify that. Do you hear this? We're talking about expressing glory to God, but instead we're talking about expressing ourselves sexually. Instead of identifying with Jesus Christ, we're talking about how do you identify in your gender. We've taken what God has said and we've twisted it, has God really said, And now you can talk to lots of people who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, but they're rewriting Scripture to fit conveniences. What does the Bible say? It's one of the questions. What does the Bible say about gender swapping and gender identities? Nothing. Nothing, because He didn't give us the manual for that. He gave us the manual for for sex within marriage. And everything outside of marriage is to be 100% abstinent. How, in fact, how often could he say to us, and if you can't be abstinent, marry. But I'm not ready to get married. But while we say we're not ready to get married, we're active sexually. So backwards of how God told us that it actually works. And we're expecting God's favor when we're throwing His manual back in His face and saying, no thanks. Last week we talked about this a little bit, where you can take your experience, your feelings, your identity, your desires, your culture, and you can either take that experience and reinterpret the Word of God through it. You can make the Bible say just about anything you want to do when you do that, by the way. Or you can take the Word of God and reinterpret your experience. So now the Word of God is my filter and I can figure out what am I supposed to do with my feelings, my desires, my expressions, my identity. Now the Scripture gets to give me my identity instead of me trying to justify my identity in Scripture. 
now we're teaching our kids in school that, not our schools hopefully, but they should question everything. You know, there was a time when we didn't question things. But now it's, you know, if you haven't questioned your sexuality, you should at least ask yourself the question, do you really feel like a little boy or do you really feel like a little girl? These questions are asked and encouraged. No wonder we're so confused. You know, back in the 1900s, 1950s especially, the church spoke loudly that when you, when you start offering the pill, people outside of marriage should not consider contraceptives because what will happen is you will take sex as something meaningful and it'll be trivialized and it'll start manifesting itself everywhere and you won't be able to ever get it back. You'll turn sex from meaningful and glorifying God and you'll turn it into purely pleasure. And sex wasn't meant to be purely pleasure except as it is found in marriage. So let's talk about that for just a second, okay? I just want to, this is, this is a good time for us to talk about this. You're probably not going to hear it very many places, certainly not all in one place. So in the, in, you know, the culture began to say, well, listen, people are going to do it anyway, and, and we're going to keep having these babies, and people are going to keep putting them off. And so since they're going to do it anyway, we might as well make it easier for them. And the church, by and large, relented and said, I guess you're right. So... Remember, you cannot legislate morality, but man, these things were given to us by God and He gave us the manual. Now let's talk about the pill for just a second. I know this is not what you came to church for, but just humor me for just a few moments. If you look at the effectiveness of the birth control pill, you will find that they say it's about 99.7% effective when it's used correctly. What does that mean? That means that there are ways that you can use it incorrectly. When it is used incorrectly, and they don't really say what that means, it is very difficult to use it correctly, by the way. Uh, and, well, I'm not going to get into all that. Okay, so, and you may be sick. There may be, sometimes you're sick, your body's doing things that you don't even know it's doing, and it makes it ineffective. There's all sorts of stuff that's not being told to you, right? So, just know this, that the real rate of the effectiveness of the pill is about 91%. And you may say, well, that's not, still not terrible. But that means that 9% of people who are, or not people, but women who are taking the pill, 9% of them will still get pregnant. But it gets much worse than that. That 91% still sounds high, but this, was, this is a quote from Big Pharma. This girl will have a 9% probability of becoming pregnant in the first year. A 1 in 4 chance in the uh, probability over 3 years. 38% over 5 years and 61% over 10. They go on to say in summary, if a sexually active girl of 15 starts using the pill continuously, there is a 50% chance that she will become pregnant by the time that she's 22. 50% chance. Now there is a, that statistic is verified by a pro-abortionist. His name's Dr. Christ, uh, Christopher Teets. Who said that within quote. Within 10 years. 20 to 50% of pill users. And a substantial majority of other methods. May be expected to experience at least one repeat abortion. You hear that? 
Now we have moved from normal, from abnormal to normal, and now from more normal to, well, the peel. <laughs> and then from the peel, now we are beginning to see unwanted children still born and aborted. But by the time that she's 22, second, the repeat abortions. Now, these statistics are significant when one considers that one of the primary, that's, this is one of the primary goals of school-based clinics is distribute contraceptives and abortifacients to teenagers without parental consent and especially without parental knowledge. The Allen Guttmacher Institute figures show that 50% of all abortion patients 30 years ago were practicing contraception. And practicing contraception during the month that they conceived. And he also went on to say, well, in 2007, Murray Stopes International Study found that 43% of aborting women were using the pill when they got pregnant, and another 27% were using other forms of contraception. Here's my point. We can, we can say, well, as long as, as long as we're not having babies we don't want, it's really normalized. Truth of the matter is, there is no guarantee. And what is the number one way of dealing with a child that is still unwanted, especially with children having children? Well, abortion. That's why abortion is on the rise like you wouldn't believe. These are not, these are not marriages who are having children that they won't want. This is us trying to say, nobody's going to tell me how I'm going to live my life. This didn't happen yesterday. This has been happening for decades. We've already violated our conscience. We've already stepped away from purpose and intent because now we have tasted pure selfish pleasure and we cannot be stopped and we will not be denied. And now everything goes. To the point now where people who say that they are in a right relationship with Jesus Christ are trying to figure out how can I say that I am right with Jesus and His Word and still be sensitive to my pleasures. I know. I will rewrite, hath God said. That's not new. That's at least 6,000 years old. By the way, as we're getting there, we talk about all of these other deviations from scriptural mandates of sexuality. You go from sex within marriage to sex outside of marriage to the fornication, which is sexual activity outside of marriage. Adultery is sexual uh, expressions while you're married with somebody you're not married to. Scripture is very clear about all of these things. But I want you to see the gradation over time. And then in the late 60s and 70s, you started hearing sparks of homosexuality. And this began to permeate in Hollywood and other places. You start seeing these things happening over in Africa and the AIDS epidemic and all of those sorts of things. And the more we talk about things, the more it normalizes. The shock value begins to slowly go away. But our confusion never clears up to where we are today with gender identities and and listen, I, I, don't want to be, I don't want to sound as if I'm harsh. I just want us, I want us to have the right 
frame of mind. I want us to be able to know what the issue really is. It's not getting mad at today. It's our lapses sexually, even the church, that got us here. Who is supposed to be waging the war? Who is supposed to be the aggressors? And the gates of hell will not prevail against us. If the gates of hell is prevailing against us, who's responsible for that? It's us. Because we're pointing fingers at transvestites and gender issues and homosexuals, but we're glossing right over all of our sexual deviancy, all of our attitudes, all of our emotions that are not conformed because we keep them hidden in the dark. We're mad at those people because they sin out in public, but our sin's in the closet. And we've been looking over it for a hundred years. At least we're not like those people. We start comparing our sin to the worst of these instead of recognizing that we are the least of these. But let's talk about homosexuality for a moment. Let's talk about the rewriting of Scripture. I'm going to go through this really quick because I've just looked at the clock and I'm nervous. Genesis chapter 19, Sodom has become so associated with homosexual conduct that actually created a word, uh, sodomy, from the sodomites. I'm not going to explain what sodomy is. Don't Google it. (laughs) Unless you have somebody with you. But the story is these, uh, these angels come to Abraham and they're talking about destroying Sodom and Gomorrah. And, you know, Abraham really is, is uh, standing in the gap for Sodom and Gomorrah. And so these two angels, they go down into Sodom and they knock on Lot's door and Lot comes to the door. Now listen, if there's anybody to blame in this whole story, it's Lot. Because Lot should have been doing something completely different. But instead, he wanted to live in Sodom and Gomorrah. He wanted to live in the devil's den. And in fact, the New Testament tells us that Sot's soul, that Lot's soul was vexed daily because he lived there but he still wanted to live there that should give us a great warning about how close to sin we can live and be victorious and so these angels come to Lot's house and they want to talk to him and they want to warn him and while that's going on all of the men of Sodom come out and they want to know and this is great the Hebrew word for know is yada which is where we get the idea of yada 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 right to know something I don't have to say the words I just have to yada 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 But in this context, it is to know carnally somebody. And so these men are wanting to to pull the angels. There is zero evidence that these men knew they were angels. But they wanted to sleep with these new men, new to town men. And so how do we know that? They don't just want to sit down and talk with them socially. Because who would say that? I mean, they're knocking on the door. Hey, we want to have a conversation with the newcomers. And Lot says, here, I got an idea. Why don't you go and have sexual relationship with my daughters, my virgin daughters instead. That is the weirdest conversation ever. Uh, So we know that that's not what is really going on there. But that's how that's being spun, is that Sodom, they were just inhospitable, and they got angry, they got upset, they weren't good socially, and that's why God destroyed their city. That is so far from what's going on in the context. And by the way, you can go over to the book of Jude and find that that's not true. 
uh, Jude uh, verse 7. It says, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, served as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. He tells us why they went under fire was because of their sexual immorality and they pursued unnatural desire. Jude also goes further to talk about their sexual desires. They pursued unnatural. That means the flesh, which some have suggested that they, the flesh was because it was angelic. But the Scripture doesn't tell us that they knew that. Leviticus chapter 18 and chapter 20, Leviticus, and these are very well-known statements. In Leviticus chapter 18 verse 22, it says, You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. I mean, that's really clear. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. Now, I am not saying that we... I'm not, we're not even talking about murder and killing and all those sorts of things. But, but what I do want to say is this. For those who say that's Old Testament, we don't keep the Old Testament. We're under the New Testament. Listen, this is a Word of God issue. I have heard people say, well, that's not in red. Well, you recognize Jesus didn't speak in red, right? Jesus spoke in Aramaic very clearly. It's in red because we can't tell the difference, right? So just because Jesus' words in red in the New Testament doesn't make Leviticus any less the Word of God. Now for those who would say, well, the Bible also says you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do that, you shouldn't eat catfish, and you shouldn't eat lobster, and you shouldn't... Why are we just pick on these specific ones? Well, that's easy. If you read the Old Testament, you will see that the law is in codes. There's a religious code, there are... Uh, 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 moral code, and there are dietary laws. Well, of course, Gentiles aren't, aren't under dietary laws. We're not Jews. Thank God for pork. Amen? <laughs> We're not under the law. That law, the dietary laws. We're not under the religious law. I don't have to wear tassels on my gowns. Thank the Lord for that. But the moral law, that's for all mankind we are under. The penalties aren't the same, but we're still under. And by the way, every moral law in the book of Leviticus is substantiated in the New Testament. I just gave you one. We should thank God that it's a little different today. An abomination is most often used with adult or idolatry, which would make sense in Scripture. An abomination is associated with idolatry because when we are practicing any sort of sexual deviancy away from the user manual of our Creator, that's the greatest form of idolatry. I've put myself at the top of the totem pole. I've, I've worshipped my desires rather than His. That's why it's an abomination. Some say, well, that passage of Scripture is talking about cultic practices and pagan temples. And, you know, there was a lot of that went on in the Old Testament. And God's just telling them, hey, if you're going to, don't go to the pagan temples and worship sexually. 
Well, number one, pagan temples and worshiping sexually isn't even found in the book of Leviticus chapter 18 or chapter 20. But every, there's many, many forms of sexual misconduct that is found in these chapters, not just homosexuality. But if you're not a homosexual, you're going to point at those. But he also talks about incest and he talks about your thought life. He talks about what you're sneaking around to look at. He talks about adultery there and he also talks about bestiality there. That's not temple worship. That's sexual deviancy. And that's where homosexuality is found, and it is found to be an abomination. Along with every other form of sexual deviancy. Romans chapter 8, I'm mean, Romans chapter 1, verse 18. <clears throat> So I've got a lot to say about the nature of sexual sin. It mentions homosexuality. Uh, and for this reason, I think, it is because every other form of sexual sin can be called dangerous. I mean, if, 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 a, if, a, if a guy is committing adultery, well, shame on you. You shouldn't be treating another man's wife that way. Or fornication. You know what? You're not married to each other. You're doing damage to someone else's future spouse. I mean, every other form of sexual depravity, you could be able to say, that's not good, that's not good, that hurts that person and that person and that person and that person. But it'd be really hard to look at homosexuality when two people are saying, you know what, we're okay with this, we're okay with all of the risks, back off, you do your thing, we'll do ours. I think that that's the reason why homosexuality is called out specifically to put an end to, and it used to be a sin in America, it's not a sin anymore, it's a lifestyle alternative, but the reason that the scripture is so clear on it is because he wants to make sure that we understand, regardless if it's consensual or not, it is sin. So Paul aims in these very early chapters of the book of Romans to demonstrate the, the whole world's unrighteousness, not just homosexuality. So for us to pull that out and use that as a chapter 1 and 2 and 3 is all about homosexuality is wrong. Because there are so many sexual sins listed there. This Gentile society in Rome that he's talking about faces God's wrath because it has suppressed the truth. And as that, that God has revealed about Himself in creation. It says that by nature we know these invisible attributes of God, but we suppress the truth. It's not because we don't know it, it's because we've said no to it. And he gives three examples. He says they've exchanged the glory of God for images of creatures. Idolatry. And by the way, we are those creatures as well. That's in verse 23. Verse 25, the truth, he changed the truth of God for a lie, leading to full-blown idolatry, worshiping created things, including themselves. And then finally in verse 28, and they reject the knowledge of God, exchanging natural relations for unnatural ones. Verse 26, for this reason... God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women, exchanged natural relations for those who are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. What he says here is that homosexual desire is not what God originally intended for us. 
It is a consequence of suppressing the truth of God where we begin to have unnatural desires that give credibility to other unnatural desires and we are on a slippery slope where we eventually convince ourselves that it's right. While we do that and we say, I don't have a problem with it, I don't feel guilty about it, the truth of the matter is, the reason that we don't feel guilty is not a blessing, it's part of the curse. God tells us that the curse of this is that you'll actually give in more to it. But listen, this isn't about homosexuality. All of our desires have been distorted by sin. But Paul does describe lesbian and male homosexual behavior as unnatural. Some would say unnatural because homosexual men are being forced to live in a heterosexual relationship or vice versa. And so they're having to go against their nature. But that is not what Paul is talking about at all. In fact, it is so clear that that's not what he's talking about. The words for natural and against nature refer not to our subjective experience of what feels natural to us, but the fixed way of creation, the things of creation. The nature that Paul says homosexual behavior contradicts is God's purpose for us, revealed through creation and reiterated throughout Scripture. Old and New Testament. Anytime that we reject God, we find ourselves craving what is not natural. This is very true of a heterosexual person and it's true of a homosexual person. There are no grounds in this passage for singling out homosexual people for any kind of special condemnation. This passage indicts every one of us. We see God's wrath in this. He gives us what we want. It's not His favor. That's His wrath. I want you to notice this too. In each case, the giving over results in an intensification of the sin and a further breakdown of human behavior. God gives humanity over to impure lusts and dishonorable bodily conduct, verse 24, dishonorable passions, verse 26, the exchanging of natural relations for unnatural leads to being given over to a debased mind. And you begin to watch this. Look, Look what just happened. The flesh corrupted, given over. The mind corrupted and given over. And the spirit corrupted and given over. To pursue those desires, I can understand. Scripture talks a lot about temptation. But the very fact that we're tempted does not give us freedom to give in to any desire. He offers us hope. He offers us promises. He offers His presence. So that when we are overcome with temptation, there is always a way out. Unless we want to sin. But I want you to understand this, and this is very important. Giving over to a debased mind and flourishing in all manner of righteousness, Paul has just unpacked unpacked a long list of sexual sin, not just homosexuality. 
Sin leads to judgment, but judgment leads to further sin. I'm out of time, but I, but I, but I, you be patient with me for a few more minutes, okay? I want to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and I, I really am almost done. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and I want you to hear the meat of this chapter. Paul said this to the church at Corinth, which was probably the most corrupt city of all the churches that Paul founded. He said, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? The unrighteous. Okay, These are people who are not in right standing with God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral. What does that mean? That means anything outside the manual. The sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now how do you want to identify? Ain't a person in this room that doesn't struggle with some of that. It's kind of an odd phrase. The ESV, the English Standard Version takes this view of, it says, translates it, men who practice homosexuality. The NIV uh, translates it a little bit differently and says, says male prostitutes and homosexual offenders. But there are two unique words here. One of those words is malakoi, which simply means uh, soft ones. Or some of your translations may even say effeminate ones. That word doesn't mean girl-ish. It means the passive participant in a homosexual experience. That's what the word means. Malakaoi. The passive partner in a homosexual experience. The second word is a little bit different. It's an odd word because we don't really see it very often. But it's arkanisotoises. That's in Greek. It's an interesting word because Paul uses it several times in the New Testament. But it is a combination of two words. By this time, the Greek had been translated, or the Hebrew Old Testament had been translated into Greek. Paul actually went back to Leviticus chapter 18 and Leviticus chapter 20 to create a brand new word. This word means man in bed with man. And he's drawing off the Greek translation of Leviticus 18 and 20. Paul makes it up by combining the two words. And this person is the aggressor in a homosexual relationship. Paul is referring to both. A couple of things we learned from this passage. Number one. Homosexual sin is serious, but it's not more serious than any other sexual sin that we just gloss over, overlook. We even say sometimes, well, that's what people do, you know. Well, he's just a boy. Well, he's just a man. Well, what else is he supposed to think? That's what they do. God forgive us. That's where the problem lies. Overlooking ours and focusing only on somebody else's. Instead of comparing ourselves 
to next door. We need to be comparing ourselves to Jesus Christ. That's where our identity is. Amen? You know, and because of some of our sexual sin, you know what it's done? It's muted. It's completely muted our ability to speak into other people the very truth and the grace of Jesus Christ lest we be found out about our private life. We don't want to be a hypocrite after all. Homosexual sin is serious. But it's no more serious than every other thing we give ourselves a pass on. And which brings me to number two, and that is homosexual sin is not unique. It's not unique. Paul lists other forms of sexual sin, sexual immorality, adultery, fornication, non, even, even non-sexual uh, forms of sexual, uh, uh, sexual forms of sin. Drunkenness, theft, greed. So for those who would say, well, I, don't, you know, I have a problem being you know, dirty in business or lying to your neighbor or coveting or you know, whatever. I mean, oh, goodness sakes, there's hundreds, right? Hundreds of ways. You just keep picking on this one. That's, it is hypocrisy. It is the greatest form of hypocrisy. We must not imply that homosexual sin or homosexual sex is the sin of our age. Whatever sin you struggle with, that's the sin of our age. If we're to be faithful to Scripture, we also have to preach against theft and greed and drunkenness and reviling and defrauding others. The third thing is that homosexual sin is not inescapable. My, one of my favorite verses in Scripture is 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. Where Paul says this in this list, long list of unrighteousness that will not inherit the kingdom. As long as you're identifying with these things, you can't identify with the kingdom. And Paul looks at this church that he formed out of his own truth and grace. And he said, and such were some of you. Such were some of you. How dare you judge someone else's sin as if you're better than them? Do you not remember where Jesus found you? Not in a worse place than they are in. Might be the same place, but not the worst place. But it's also a place we should come out of. And there's grace to come out of it and no longer to be identified because this is the same people that Paul is going to declare to in just the next letter. Old things have passed away and behold, all things have become new. So when people say, well, but how do you identify? Identify with Jesus Christ. How do you express yourself? I express myself to the glory of Jesus Christ. Everything I do and say is to the glory of God the Father. In Romans chapter 8, it says this. That it is the goodness of God that leads people to repentance. How do we, how do we deal 
in a, in a culture, in a world. I mean, I'm, we, are, we are way out of time. Next week, we're going to talk about a lot of this in conclusion with some other things as well. But how do we then live righteously in an unrighteous age? How do we, how do we, how do we speak life and truth into people? Well, number one, we have to live holy, right? We have to live by the manual, right? And if you're not living by the manual, we need to get right with the Lord and say, forgive me. And there's forgiveness for that. For all of this. The church was built on people who were such as these. This church included. The Bible says that Jesus was full of grace and truth. And the church is full of truth. And that truth looks a whole lot like a finger pointed. But we've got to learn how to balance grace and truth. Because there is no way out of darkness. Except by grace and truth with all love. How do you know if it's grace and truth? It's loving. There are better things than being right. And that is being redeemed. And being disciple makers. We've got to learn that God's grace is good enough for every one of us. And it's good enough for every one of them. Our responsibility is how do I identify with Christ. So that I might have a voice. To manifest his grace and his truth. Let's pray together. Lord I just pray that you would give us sensitivity, compassion. Lord, as we remembered from the very beginning of this service, as we remembered your blood and your body that was broken, may we also remember that there is no sin but such is common to man. But Lord, your truth and your grace abounds to every man. So help us, Lord, to, to truly walk in grace and truth. Help us to walk redeemed so that the world may see your favor demonstrated through us. Not condemnation, but love. Not acceptance, but love. Because, well, Lord, we are, our goal is not to be accepted by one another, but to be accepted by you so that we can walk with you and inherit the kingdom of God. So, Lord, help us to learn how to navigate the culture that we have created because we've overlooked our own sin. And Lord, it is those sin right now that I ask that you would convict us heavily of. The depravity of our day is standing on the sin of our past. So Lord, if you would remind us, we would repent and agree with you. Have your way with us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.